Welcome to No Mean City, a podcast where we explore season by season the legendary Scottish crime series Taggart ahead of its 40th anniversary. I'm Stephen. And I'm Ian. And on this special episode, we are honoured to welcome Glenn Chandler, the author, playwright, producer, and most relevant to this podcast, the main writer and creator of Taggart. Welcome to No Mean City, Glenn. It's good to be here, honestly. It really is. Does a day go by in your life where people don't talk about a show to you? Not one, not one single day. No, no, no. I mean, I mean, I've got past the stage now where people stop me and ask me to say there's been a murder. That doesn't happen very often now. Only the diehard Taggart fans, but um, no, it's all it's, it sits there and it sits there in the back of my head. It's it's like it's like the ground that I sit on, you know. Do, do you ever tire of it? Is it? Do you still? feel is it something that makes you pleased that people still talk about it to this day it's thrill. I, on, honestly it really does thrill me that um that people talk that people do still talk about it and people still remember it i mean the thing that annoys me slightly is when somebody comes up to me and says yeah yeah my great grandmother used to watch taggart <laughs> <laughs> and that doesn't really annoy me it amuses me more than anything else but you know, it's it's nice that it's still there in the consciousness, and it's nice that it's still there. You know, the whole evening of drama, mm. uh, drama channel devoted to Taggart and Robert Love, who produced Taggart, that we'll get onto in a minute, I'm sure, um, would ring me up and he say, "Oh, did you say that such and such a? Did you see that such and such a show was on tonight? You know, and did you watch it again? You know, they they keep repeating them, and that's the great the greatest accolade is when they keep repeating them." Do you watch them? Do you ever sit down and actually reflect back on the show itself? During the lockdowns, we had a little a little spate of looking at some old yeah. favourite taggarts, which was rather nice. A very lovely thing happened the other day. I had a I had a lady viewer emailed me. Well, she emailed my agent first of all, and then she passed the uh, the email on to me, desperate to bring back taggart. She's been writing apparently to Scottish Television, begging them to bring back taggart. And uh, she had a whole lot of ideas. She set out exactly what was going to happen to all the characters. She practically wrote the script. <laughs> and uh, it, to be honest, it wasn't going to, it, I don't think it was, it would have really worked. But she had some wonderful imaginative ideas. And I, I really complimented her on them. And I said, look, you keep writing to Scottish television and throwing this stuff at them. You know, they, they might just do it. Well, after our first episode went out, I spoke to somebody at Scottish Television and uh, she brought up, uh, I was talking about my experience of going to uh, the media interviews where they would talk about what was coming up and how the press just always cared about, well, when are you bringing Taggart back? And you could tell they got quite annoyed by that. But I'm told that question still comes up to this day. So <laughs> it just is the most, it must be the most memorable show they've ever produced by miles. I think so. They, they, there have, there has been talk of bringing Taggart back, not as Taggart. Mm. There's been talk of son of Taggart, daughter of Taggart, Taggart set in 1920. I don't know. You think of all the variations <laughs> you can probably put on it, and there's been talk of it. So, can, can we start um, by asking? I mean, how how did you get involved with it? What were you doing that pulled you into television writing, and then ultimately to write what would become Killer? I don't know. I, I, was, I was just behaving myself, really. Uh, I was I was working uh, in London in theatre. I was writing plays for a theatre called the Soho Poly, 
um, in Ridinghouse Street in, near, in near Oxford Circus. And I'd been trying for ages to get shows on television. I'd sent about 30 scripts to the BBC and I kept getting rejections. And every time I got a rejection, I made sure there was another script on its way to them. And uh, I, I, I eventually somebody said to me, Look, why are you wasting your time? You know, there's lots of these little fringe theatre clubs in London. Why don't you start writing for theatre? So I thought, fine, OK, then. So I started writing plays, little one act plays. And I got literally got on my bike, <clears throat> went around these little theatre clubs and gave them to people and said, look, you know, I'm a budding playwright, please put one on. And eventually I met a lovely guy called George Byatt, who was involved with the Soho Poly Theatre. And he said, yeah, really love this play. Let's workshop it. And I thought, I don't know what a workshop was. I thought it was like a garage or something like that. I was so naive. So they did it and, and they put the play on and it was it was very successful. And I wrote about three or four. Mm -hmm. And one of these plays I did, it was called Moonlight Across the Heather. It was a kind of a thriller set in a, a bothy in Scotland with a, a psychopath, <laughs> a, a father and a daughter and a, a psychopath that wanted to kill them and go, well, go into the plot now. But um, there was an actor in it, lovely Scottish actor called Joe Gregg. And he happened to know Robert Love, head of drama at Scottish television. And he said to Robert one day, God, you know, I've been in a play by a new playwright down in London called Glenn Chandler. And, uh, you know, I think, should, I think you should meet the guy. And Robert got in touch with me and uh, asked me to do um, a short play for Scottish television. And, and in those days, Robert was doing a series called Preview. It was half hour plays, half hour plays by new writers. Now, my God, who does that now? Hmm. Nobody. You know, if you're a new writer on television, you're you're stuck into soap operas and things like that. So you get that's where you learn your craft. But these were little half-hour plays, and I did a few of them for Robert. And then one day he said, "Come out, come out, and have a tea, dear boy." <laughs> and come, we went to tea shop, a tea shop in Covent Garden, and he said, "I'm thinking of doing a a whodunit, uh, a, a, a Scottish detective whodunit. Is that something you'd be interested in in doing?" So well, I've never written a Who Done It in my life before. You know, I read Agatha Christie, and that's about it. And that's where it started. It started through Robert hearing of one of my stage plays and asking me to do some small thirty-minute plays. And then suddenly, I get um, I get three hours of Scottish Who Done It thrown at me. It was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. I can't think of anything less Taggart though than a tea shop in Covent Garden. <laughs> No, I'll, I'll tell you what, we were in that we were in that tea shop. There was a great big butch guy from Inverness. He was a steel erector. He was working on a on a on a job uh, in London. And he came out he came up to Robert as a steel erector in a, from Inverness sitting in a tea shop in Covent Garden, but it's true. And he came up, he heard Robert and I talking Scottish accents and he said, Aye boy, you get into trouble down here, he said, you call on me, I'll sort them out. <laughs> He thought we were tourists, you know, or something like that. So you did. You met the leader of the Tartan Mafia then, by the yeah, side of things. He probably was. It does exist. Okay, um, can you remember then? So, I mean, what was your reaction to 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 that conversation? Uh, how how much time did he give you? What, what happened after that? It was not a lot of time. I mean, I had to I had to go away and uh, think of a story. I mean, it was Robert Robert. It was Robert who suggested the. Um, 
the, the type of he said he said give me give me a character who's like hard nosed he's come up through the ranks in Glasgow, and give me an Edinburgh University copper, uh, as a partner. And that was that was the only brief that Robert gave me, and he said go away and think of a plot. We've got three hours of television. You know, it's like you know, this was a serial. You know, nobody was doing that in those days, um, and I had to go away and sit and think of a story. Uh, it was very, very hard, and um, it almost fell at the first hurdle because I'd never constructed anything as big as that before. Mm. You know, I'd written a short play for theatre, which was sixty minutes, um, and that's a different thing. But three hours of television—that's that's like two hours and. 25 minutes with it take away the advert mm. you're talking about a full-length movie and, and structurally as well it must be a very different process to writing as you said like one act plays and writing for the theater when you're writing exactly tv I, directions and camera directions and so on exactly I, I i didn't i started it not knowing how i was going to finish it which was the problem <clears throat> and i not even i was sure who did it halfway through and I think Robert got that impression as well. Robert really liked episode one and he said, yes, this looks really good, Glenn, carry on. Got to the episode of two and he said, I think things are going a bit wrong here. Um, do you know who's done it at the end? I said, well, I've got a couple of ideas. And the first lesson I learned, and it was the hard way, believe me, it was the hard way, was um, <clears throat> construct story before you start to write it. <laughs> You know, I don't know how Agatha Christie constructed her stories, but I'm sure, I'm sure she does it. She did it like an architect. I, I believe it was quite similar. I believe she would write it and then figure out who, who actually did it at the end. Yeah, uh, which... I have, I have heard that. Oh, maybe I, 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 I thought you know, I, I needed to know, and I needed to be absolutely set out exactly what I was doing. And Robert, Robert gave me some great pieces of advice along the way. He said, he said, thicken, thicken the soup. Make it as, you know, I think there's it's a little bit thin here. You want another suspect. Bring in a subplot. Bring in a creepy little subplot that makes people think it's the most relevant thing to the story. And it's not. It's got nothing whatsoever to do with it. And uh, they were, they were, I mean, the advice and the um, uh, the guidance I got from Robert in these early days was was invaluable. Because Robert, Robert had worked on series like uh, Public Eye, mm. Frank Marker, and he worked on Van der Valk. So Robert knew his stuff. So, so the subplot with uh, the the rapist who's just got out of jail was that is that where that came from then? That was yeah, that was yeah, it was like well, like one story. I thought yes, we need we need somebody who's come out of jail. Um, uh, Michael Boyd, Michael Boyd with his dog. That was the red herring. That, that was very much like like the Yorkshire Ripper because the Yorkshire Ripper in that case was was. The real Yorkshire for was he was kind of hanging around on the sidelines, you know. And I thought, you know, when they're hunting for a serial killer, you know, he's there. He's he's there. He's he's watching the TV. He's 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 cutting he's cutting out newspaper cuttings about the crimes. He's there practically under their noses, but they they're looking in the other direction. And I thought, yeah, the Michael Boyd with his Gerard Kelly with his that was Michael Boyd was the name of the character. Coming down from the tower tower block with his with his dog uh, was was an absolute prime suspect, and everybody thought everybody thought it was Der Gerard Kelly and his little dog, which incidentally wasn't a real dog. From which <laughs> it was it was actually on wheels uh, when we didn't see it because the dog beauty belonged to our stage manager, a guy called Joe Miller, and uh, 
Butte got the part of the dog, but it ran away one day and we needed we needed to do the shots with Gerard Kelly. So we gave him a, we gave, we gave him a dog on <laughs> and he couldn't do half his scenes without laughing. When, and when I watched it back, knowing that, I couldn't tell. <laughs> it so well. You really can't. You really can't tell that. <laughs> How did you find um, writing? Because obviously, you, you were living in London at that point, and you, you, you're from Edinburgh, and your background was in Edinburgh before you moved down south. How did How did you find writing Glasgow? Because the one thing that, that really comes across with Tiger is it's, it feels like such an authentic Glasgow voice. It's um, got that that kind of Glasgow voice so clear in, in Jim and in the characters around him. How did How hard did you find it sort of creating that? I needed a lot of tuition. I I was an Edinburgh public schoolboy. What did I know about Glasgow? Nothing. I'd been to Glasgow about four times in my life before. <laughs> um, before I started to write it, I gave myself a crash course in in Glasgow. I literally went around the city, spent twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, walking around the city, popping into pubs, talking to people, uh, just. Just getting the the atmosphere of the place and the padois and uh, Joe Miller, our stage manager, took me on a few trips around Glasgow. He said, "I'll take you to some places where you'll hear real class music." <laughs> oh God! <laughs> and he did. He did very much. You know, I said it was a very fun. There was there was an episode. There was an episode, and I can't remember which one it was, where a character said to Taggart, "I'm a gog," and Joe Miller said to me. What kind of line is that in Glasgow? I'm a gog. They say that they say that kind of thing in Edinburgh. Like in Glasgow. <laughs> so, I always remember that. God, at the party at the end of the shoot, I got a T-shirt with "I'm a gog" written on it. <laughs> where, where did uh, where did Taggart himself come from then? Well, I'd seen. Funnily enough, I'd seen Mark McManus in. Um, he was in an Australian movie called Ned Kelly, mm -hmm. and uh, he was also in. A, he'd also done a. He was also in a television series called Strangers, which I think was on Granada. I can't remember now. Um, but he was. He was a kind of a Scottish. He was a kind of a face that I and a voice. He was also in The Brothers. He was in the uh, the, the BBC show The Brothers. Mm -hmm. that I was addicted to when when it was when he was giving away my age here. Um, and I thought I need I needed to have a face in mind and a voice in mind and a character in mind. And I kind of thought of Mark McManus as I was writing it. And lo and behold, you know, who did they get at the end of the day? But the man himself. Did you tell them that? Was that pure luck? It was pure it was I think it was pure luck. I mean I mean I think Robert when we were casting, Robert offered it to a few people. And then Mark um I think I'd mentioned Mark McManus, so he said, well, we'll try him. So, you know, we gave him the script. He was in Glasgow at the time, up at Scottish Television, doing something else. And uh, we gave him the script and he was going back down to London and he read it on this train going to London. Uh, when he got to King's Cross, he phoned up Robert and said, I'm doing this. <laughs> Don't you dare give it to anybody else. <laughs> and history was made. History was made. Is the myth true that you got the name from a tombstone? The names all came from tombstones in oh. uh, Mary Hill Cemetery. With the exception of Detective Sergeant Livingston, he came from the, the railway, the railways to the town and the station. <laughs> um, <laughs> going through Livingston, I thought, yeah, that's a good name. So, uh, so I mean, the, the two characters 
Um, I mean, Taggart's obviously just been partnered with Livingston uh, as they both reach the crime scene. Uh, this is the first time they meet. Well, what, where was the inspiration for creating that that tension? These two characters are from completely different backgrounds that are just designed not to get on. <laughs> well, it, it fell into my lap, really. I mean, in Edinburgh, well, there was all this I'm a Gog thing. I thought, well, there are the things I would say. Uh-huh. things that Taggart would say. And I, I'd done a lot about reading about forensics, uh, which was a you know, bit of a hobby of mine. And uh, I thought, yeah, ligature. Yeah, he'd call um, he'd call something, somebody who'd been strangled with a ligature. And I thought, we wouldn't call that in Glasgow a ligature. So the, the line, um, we don't have ligatures in Mary Hill, came very naturally. And I thought, that kind of fired me off. I thought, there's a lot, there's a lot of conflict here. It was not difficult to go on from there, to be honest. It's it's one of the fascinating things from watching the, the first episodes as, as we've been doing this is is that the character dynamic and how much it changes. And you've got Jim and, and Peter are, are very you know, diametrically opposed for quite a lot of the run. And then when Jardine comes in, you've got Jim Mike, and obviously there's supposed to be the familial connection with Jim knowing Mike's dad, but it's such a smoother partnership in terms of it. Was that something that you, you consciously wanted to do to, to separate the the kind of antagonistic approach you'd had with the, the sort of previous partner and having someone who was a bit more relatable and a bit friendlier to? Um, yes, I, need, I needed to separate, you know, Livingston in a way from Jardin. Livingston was Edinburgh public school boy. Mm-hmm. He drank things with blackcurrant. He had funny lager and, lager and blackcurrant, whereas Jardin didn't drink and he was a Christian. And uh, there was just, I just had to keep the conflict up. Um, you can't have two characters in, in detective fiction who get on together. It's a standard thing. They've got to be, they've got to be set against each other in some way. So, so one of the most unique things about the show, and we discussed this in the first episode, is the fact that Taggart is married to his wife is disabled. Yes, and yeah. even today we, we still don't see. Uh, well, Coronation Street is the only one that comes to mind, but but we don't see that sort of representation on screen. Where was that? Was that an initial idea that you had? Where where, where did that? Uh, where was the genesis of that? Well, the genesis of that was, if you remember, Killer, <clears throat> the first one. I had no idea this was going to spread into a long-running series of how many years? Was twenty-eight years? And in the very first one. I wanted Taggart to be a suspect himself. I thought, well, why shouldn't the detective be a suspect? So let's put his wife in a wheelchair and suggest that, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's frustrated, in, you know, frustrated in his love life and all something or other. And Harriet, who Harriet, who played his wife, Jean, I mean, she, she was lovely. I mean, nowadays, if we did that, you know, the, the, the actor in a wheelchair would have to be played by somebody who was really in a wheelchair. We wouldn't get away with that now. But what you said in your very first podcast was true. You know, they hated each other. They didn't get on together. And it was always, God, we thought, oh, God, we've got the Taggart and Jean scenes coming up. It's going to be far worse here. It did work, though, because on screen there is a real, there's a nice sort of creative tension between the two that, that does spark. And, it, you know, it's, it's that old thing of you know, friction sometimes with the best sort of creativity. But it, there is a definite, watch a couple of the scenes, there's some lovely kind of, edginess that you're expecting to people who are in a, in a kind of relationship where they don't necessarily get on anyway so it kind of works or it's, it's fun to watch so one of my favorite scenes is in um uh murder in the season when they're coming out of the theater and, and she says to jim i can manage myself and he goes fine walks off yes i, did, I wanted to make her very very independent 
living living her own life and um, you know standing for Parliament, which she did at one one in one episode. So we need to talk about the scene, the interrogation scene that probably today would be very different. But when when they're talking, when they're interviewing the the lecturer, what, where where did that idea come from, and what was the reaction you? You got well trying to incorporate that scene because I can't imagine it was easy to to get through. I was also sort of pushing pushing boundaries and bringing up subjects that weren't explored on television in those days. And I thought, well, why not? You know, why not push in that scene and just it, it was something that came naturally to me. I didn't I didn't shy, shy away from these subjects at all, um, especially when we when we when we got to Angel Eyes way further on in the series. Mm. You know, there's a there's a whole show about a gay serial killer, and that was uh, that was something I really wanted to do from the very beginning. Was was there any apprehension towards that scene? And I wonder how helpful it would have been the fact that you were a new writer to this, so therefore you didn't know not to do that, or you could at least claim, "Oh, I didn't realise." <laughs> I didn't know not to do anything. I really wasn't. <laughs> yeah, you know, Robert, Robert was very squeamish about a lot of things. Mm. Uh, he'd he'd say, oh, "I don't think we can get away with that," or or uh, I mean, I remember with um, when we got to Knife Edge, which was target number four, mm-hmm. Alex Norton, who became Inspector Burke, who was playing the butcher, who we thought was chopping up bodies and leaving them around, leaving them around Glasgow. I remember Robert saying, "Robert was terribly proper, you know. He wasn't. He was a very uh, he wasn't like the kind of standard producer that you think about." Uh, are we going to see these severed limbs that are in the script? Are we going to see the kind of bloody bits where they're cut off? I said, no, Robert, no, they'll, they'll be they'll be in blankets. They'll be wrapped in blankets. Yes, yes, but yes, yes, but yeah, boy, you know what happens when the director comes on? You know, the blanket gets removed, and we see we see all the entrails and veins and bits of artery hanging out. We we don't really want to see that. We'll never get away with that. The network center won't let us get away with that. I said, well. I will, I will write in the script, Robert, that you know the the end of the severed arm is wrapped up in a blanket. What happens after that is your business. You know? Robert Robert was very squeamish. Certain subjects he didn't like to uh, go too far down the road with. I, I would argue you got pretty far down the road with quite a lot. Um, <laughs> even talking to people today, they talk about how how scared they were at the time when a lot of these episodes came out, and well, reviewing a lot of them now, I still. I wonder just how, are you a fan of horror movies or uh, oh, there's so much in there? I am. I am mm. very much. I'm a great fan of Hitchcock. It was, uh, Hitchcock was a great inspiration, <laughs> watching Hitchcock movies and just making the audience think that something was going to happen when it didn't. Like like the butcher shop in, in Knife Edge where the butcher comes, Alex Norton comes in with a cake in a box. We don't know it's a cake. <clears throat> He's just brought in this box. We think it's a human head. Mm. Is going to put into the black pudding mixture, and we, and it's built. This is built up and built up and built up until somebody opens the box with with the appropriate music, and we realise it's a birthday cake, and they all come in and sing to him. Was there any ever any any pressure from STV or from um, the network to not go too far? Because I even watching some of the early ones, obviously talking about that and. Um, in murder in season, there's someone shoots himself, or there's a shotgun injury, which is, although even though you see it briefly in the background, it's one of the most amazing prosthetics I think I've seen in the eighties. It's a, an amazing bit of makeup, but it, it's something again you kind of eighty-five on network television. You're going, Blimey, that's a bit much. So was there ever kind of a 
a director from from Co Gardens or from from London going click tone this down a wee bit. There was never a directive that I know about. Robert may have got one. Robert may have gotten his fly one and not told me about it. The only directors once we got were from the network centre when, uh, do you remember the one with um, the, the crossbow? The crossbow oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, <clears throat> there was a scene where he fires the crossbow into the guy's neck and there's lots of, lots of gurgling noises. That was too much. That was too much. They said that when this is, this went out, and they said that uh, when this is repeated, um, we want that cut. So we used to we used to cut the three hour version into like a two hour movie when it was repeated, mm. and uh, we were we were ordered to cut that sequence, and we repeated it, and uh, the repeat went out, and something went wrong that stayed in. <laughs> nobody nobody cut. Oh, God. <laughs> I did, I did think myself that was going just a little bit too far. And even I find that that scene hard to look at. I find it a bit, uh, a bit shocking. <clears throat> there, were, there were questions in Parliament, apparently, the next day. Um, I think a policeman said that he'd, he'd seen um, somebody with a crossbow firing off from a rooftop that night after that Taggart episode went out. But it turned out anyway that the, the policeman apparently had made it up. He made the story up. Oh, God. <laughs> So you know it's hard to believe these things, isn't it? But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's let's not go down that route. Like, <laughs> uh, that's a different podcast. So, but I mean, you talk about that, but then I would argue you made one of the most terrifying pieces of television with Nest of Vipers, which I mean freaked me out for years. <laughs> oh yes, <clears throat> I had wanted to make something with snakes because I love snakes, and. Uh, a lot of the ideas from there came from a guy who lived in uh, in High Wycombe. And he kept snakes. It was his hobby. He had three pythons in his house. And um, I went, I spent a day. He had a wee dog. He had a wee terrier dog called Taggart. And he was thrilled that I was going to pace a Taggart around to all his snakes. And uh, he let me handle snakes. And he, he had this, um, <clears throat> he had this viper. And uh, he left me in a room with a hit. His telephone rang, and he said, "Look, I've got to make a call. I've got to make this call here. I'll be about twenty minutes." So he 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 took this chicken out of his fridge, and he threw it to this viper, which was that a cobra? I can't remember what it was. Now it was some horrific-looking thing that was like something out of a horror film. Anyway, this thing this thing picked up the chicken in its mouth, and he said to me, "Look, it will take him about half an hour to eat that chicken." While he's eating it, you're perfectly safe. You can just sit down. That's <laughs> <laughs> when I did all the research for Nest of Vipers. My gosh, it was, uh, it was a fun one to do. We had, we had Sean Connery's niece doing that show. She was she was one of the lab technicians who had to, who had to handle the snakes. Oh wow! Yeah, and we had to, we had to make sure we had to make sure that any any actor that we auditioned for that. <clears throat> didn't freak out to handling or touching a snake because yeah. practically every actor had to handle a snake at some point. And we had, we had a guy from the zoo, a London zoo, come into the audition room with a python and some smaller snakes. And everybody who came to audition for the parts had to be told, well, do you like snakes? Yes, yes. Do you mind touching them? No, no, no. Well, would you like to stroke this snake? <laughs> just, just to give us an idea that we were getting the right person for the job. 
And uh, I remember, I remember one 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 girl coming in for a part. I think it was the part that Sean Connery's niece eventually got. And uh, we said, "You mind snakes?" No, no, no. I love snakes. Never touched one, she said. But I loved, I loved the look of them. I'd love to touch one. Well, well, on the floor there, we said, <clears throat> "Go and touch it." She said, "Where?" Well, this was a python, and it went, <laughs> it went the length of the room. I think she thought it was a doorstop. Oh. <laughs> And she, looked, she looked at it and she shrieked and ran out. She couldn't, so, so she didn't get the part. Yeah, I, I would be following her straight out the door as well. No way. Yeah. So, um, so going back to to Killer itself, then, um, did you spend a lot? Did you get to spend a lot of time on set and actually watching it all happen? Writers don't often spend a lot of time on location. So, how much time were you actually present? I was there as much as possible. You know, writing, I always thought writing was the pretty boring part, you know, and you're just locked up in your room writing. I mean, God, which writer wouldn't give the opportunity to be out on film location five days a week? It was it was fabulous fun. And we were like a big family up there. There was no, there was nothing like, oh, you're the writer, you've got nothing to do with this. You know, I was very, very much part of the production team. And I was welcome up there as long as, I, many times as I wanted. Hmm. And uh, and I took I took every advantage. The only time I couldn't was when they said to me, "Well, look, you know, once this once this series is finished, we need scripts for the next one, please. Mm-hmm. Five weeks time. Can you go away and write them? You know, I thought, well, I better take some time off and write. Were you never tempted then in those circumstances to go? I'm going to set this episode in Tenerife for Brazil or something. Like, <laughs> then I could go and spend the location time there as well. <clears throat> well, I did. We set we set one in um, or I set one in um, in Germany. Mm. Went on holiday to uh, Neuschwanstein and Munich, which I'd never been. I always wanted to go to Munich. Went to a beer hall there, which was great fun. I thought I'd like to come back here. I'll set a taggart here, and we and we did. We we set we set a taggart in Munich, and uh, we had the whole whole production company go over there for for a week. And uh, that 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 was I could tell you some stories about that. That probably. <laughs> We, well, we hope to have you on for future podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a whole podcast in itself to do the, yes. the Munich, I think. Right, we'll, we'll dedicate an episode to, uh, just yeah. for that episode itself then. Um, when did you find out it was going to go? What was the reaction to Killer? And when did you find out, oh, this is going to become a thing, a series? Um, I hesitate to say it was after number six or seven or something like that i mean every time they said we want another one i thought okay that's it so after one made the answers for two after two the answers for three then robert said look they want a fourth one and probably a fifth i said well that will probably be it robert won't it well let's see then we got to six and seven at the end and i thought come on this is this is going on a bit but i never i never ever thought to myself um this is going to go on forever 28 years it never occurred to me that it was going to go on for that length of time so um yeah. i mean we had no time we had no time to sit back on our laurels and relax and say look, look we've done six six shows of six seven shows with tagger as a tag as, as a character and this is successful and the network sent him more and more we never had the time that suddenly you know there was another script wanted just had to go away and do it, just doing the work. 
And it, was there any any episodes or any stories when because of that? Because obviously television production then is very different to how it's done now, and the, the structure is is very different, and resources as well are a bit more than there would have been in, in eighty five. But was there any episodes when you sort of doing that where you kind of go, I just wish we'd another week, to get another draft, or just a bit more time in the budget to do to do X and to, to elevate it. one you came away from? Not that you weren't happy with, but you just think if we just had a bit more, we could have done more with it. I don't think that ever occurred. I honestly don't. I think we 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 had we had a nice time in between. We were never rushed. We ne we never had to bring out something so quickly. We had no time to plan it. Everything. Um, Robert and I would have regular meetings every time I did a script. Robert and I would have lunch or dinner and discuss it. And if he had any any feelings about what was wasn't going right, he'd mention it. Um, and then when we got to number three. You know, then we'd, we'd have a cast read through. If anything was wrong, it would show up at that time. Uh, there came a moment when you knew this is it. We just got to go ahead and film it. We were never, we were never panicked into doing something that we didn't feel was ready, which was which was a nice feeling. Yeah. When did the line "There's been a murder" become become iconic to you? When did you start to notice that people were were repeating it and <laughs> is it something that you felt you had to include because of that at any point? I never included it. I mean, he never said there's been a murder. He didn't, no. I, I think he said there's been a murder in Mary Hill or there's been a murder in Mulgai, Mulgai or there's been a murder somewhere. There's been a murder in Edinburgh, you know, but I don't think anybody ever actually said there's been a murder. Hmm. Um, and I never put, I never put that. I don't think I ever consciously thought of that when I wrote the line there's been a murder somewhere I never thought oh god no they're going to take the miss out of this line they're take the piss out of this line no no um I can't say that <clears throat> this came this came long after yeah and this is something that I hope we get to talk to you more about in the future if you're if you're happy to come back on and talk to us but uh Glenn it has been an absolute privilege to get to talk to you and um well, congratulations on its continuing success, and hopefully we can do you proud. Thank you very much. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for this special bonus episode of No Mean City. We'll be back very soon with our next regular episode, looking at the first series proper of Tiger, 1985's Dead Ringer, and Murder in Season. So join us then, and thank you for tuning in. Bye then.